UX Podcast Episode 279. Hello, I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 200 countries and territories in the world, from Angola to the Netherlands. From time to time, we bring you a repeat show. This is an episode from our extensive back catalogue, resurfacing some of the ideas and thoughts from the past that we believe are still relevant and well worth revisiting. Steve, welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you. You've done so much, and uh, what we want to talk to you about today is your most recent creation, Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries, User Research War Stories. Uh, And I have to say, I finished this book actually today, and I usually don't have time to finish the books prior to these interviews, (laughs) because we don't get the books that much ahead of time. Just just Uh, to make you feel better, Per, I didn't finish it in time <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm halfway through oh. i'm halfway through but i loved i loved it i loved it uh and it it, ha- it gave me so many different emotions reading it and i actually when i was thinking about it I, I was starting to compare it to that documentary humans i don't know if you know about it but since all these stories encompass the world i mean they're from afghanistan they're from japan they're from uganda whatever and, and you get so many insights into these uh what these people have experienced uh But now I'm getting ahead of myself, as usual. So (laughs) explain to us, because there's, I mean, it's not like your regular kind of book. It's it's war story. So so what is a war story then? Yeah, a war story is a story about, I mean, in this case, these are stories about user research. So a user research war story is a story about a researcher trying to accomplish something, uh, facing some challenge. And I think what makes these stories... In this specific type of stories, the storyteller doesn't always overcome their challenge. Uh, sometimes, you know, I think when we when we look at sort of stories as a pedagogical tool or whatever, however we find stories being used, they're often stories of overcoming and succeeding. Uh, and these are stories that are a little more gritty or a little more grounded where, yeah, sometimes you lose out, you don't win, or you don't end up where you think you were going to end up. And... I think what makes these stories powerful is is that difference. Like, oh, what 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 happens when things go wrong? And wrong, of course, is on a continuum. I think I say in the book, wrong or different from what was expected. Um, so mm-hmm. just it, it, and, and you know what the book encompasses is many different categories or patterns or themes of ways in which things can go wrong. And you know, and, and so there's kind of a deep dive into each of these different areas where things don't go the way that we expected and what do we get out of that? I, yeah. I actually think when I was reading reading the book, um, I, it struck me about how the book could be quite a good, um, I, know, I suppose not therapy tool, but or maybe a good therapy tool for, for overcoming um, imposter syndrome. Because when you're you know, when you're reading these stories, and you know we've we've discussed before, we've talked before about how how reluctant our industry seems to be at times to to share the bad days. You know we're we're first up on stage to talk about the good days, but the 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 bad days get swept under the carpet, and and I think that feeds the imposter syndrome um, that a lot of people suffer from. But by reading these stories, you kind of 
you you realise that a lot of people out there they have bad days too. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the therapeutic benefit as well. I think in the introduction, so I, I'm with you. I think um, hearing a story of how somebody else has messed up, and it's not that we're saying like, oh, well, don't you know, just only uh, do sort of a second-rate effort. I mean, in these stories, you see people that to the best of their abilities at the time that the story is kind of happening for them are absolutely doing their best, but they are, uh, they're human beings. They're flawed. They're imperfect. Their, their judgment is as best as it can be, but, but it's flawed. Uh, and so you see mm-hmm. things go wrong. And I, I see people reading these stories or reading this book and having a couple reactions. And, and one is to feel very critical of these storytellers uh, and, and I found this a lot when I was kind of going through drafts of the book. People would say, well, well, this story is interesting, but I would never have done that. Or doesn't this person realize? <laughs> and, and, and that's okay. I mean, I kind of encourage people not to be judgmental just because it's, uh, it's a different way to go through life, I guess, especially if we think about research. Uh, but if you do find yourself being judgmental, then, then reflecting on what's the difference between your view of the world and what this researcher did helps you see what some of the takeaways for you might be. I would never do that, but I would never do what so-and-so did. But in articulating that, I realize, oh, one of my best practices is X. Um, But then on the flip side, I think this is kind of what you were getting at, seeing somebody else mess up and realizing that the world didn't end, that it's natural, it's going to occur you know, facilitates, I think, our own sense of of empathy for all these different participants and for ourselves. Back to your point about imposter syndrome, maybe one of the ways to overcome imposter syndrome is to have empathy for ourselves. And if we realize, oh, yeah, other people are going to mess up. They are. Here's a whole book of them. And we know this is just the tip Mm. of the iceberg. Mm. Then then we can have empathy for them and empathy for ourselves and... uh, feel okay with what we do know and what we don't know as we're all on our paths to get better at at everything. Um, but obviously research here being the focus and research is this very personal thing. Uh, so having empathy for ourselves as we make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and improve mm-hmm. uh, is so much better than saying, well, I suck and I'm no good at this. It's just not mm-hmm. a great way to be. And I think the value for the practice and for the community is having people take care of themselves and do their best to get better but be realistic about it yeah so it's really a book not about how to do user research it's not even a book about how not to do user research it's about helping people feel more comfortable with the the concept of being unprepared or anything can happen and and when you said just now is when you end every chapter with with you've divided these into different chapters with different learnings that you end each chapter with and one of the learnings it was what you said just now learn from mistakes but you're saying that it's not learn from mistakes so that you can stop making that mistake it's so don't stop making mistakes but learn how to handle them and how your research even could benefit from them uh pick some some of the ideas i take from it like uh the sore thumb or the burned thumb uh, story where where uh, a woman burned her thumb before going into the session, and it, it made her f- be more vulnerable, which made had made, well everybody had something to talk about, and it probably made that session even better. Uh, so, sure, learn from your mistakes, but maybe not in the sense that you should not make them again. Is what I'm th- what I'm thinking. 
Right. And so it's not a how-to book the way that uh, my previous book, Interviewing Users, is maybe more kind of a text. It might be what you'd look at if you were just learning the craft. And here, it's not a how-to, and yet there are things, there's lots to be learned, I think, uh, from mm. reading the book, but it's more in the flavor of what you kind of talked about. Yeah, so so Jen Downs burns her thumb and, you know, sort of laughs about her own clumsiness and then tries to f- deal with it this way and tries to deal with it that way and then tries to deal with it this way and then ends up in the interview and then the receptionist gives her a glass of ice water and she's sitting there looking like a dork with the, her thumb and a glass of ice water and then she spills the ice water all over the conference, the beautiful conference room table. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not even just the burned thumb. It's then mm-hmm. all these things kind of go wrong. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, you can read the story and you can see a little bit about how Jen is in the world and how she's sort of comfortable with her own, you know, sequence of screwing up and how she's a little lighthearted about it, uh, at least in, in retrospect she is. And then, and, and as you say, it changed the dynamics of the, the room. I think uh, in this context, she comes from this uh, slightly more hip company, and she's at this very conservative workplace. And uh, the burned thumb creates something to talk about. It creates a way to make her vulnerable and less uh, and more accessible to people. So she has the, uh, she finds a way to deal with it, and then she articulates all these different lessons like how vulnerability is is a way to connect with people um yeah. and and you know build rapport and so re- that's not that, that's not sort of a how to thing but it does surface these interesting principles that you know we can think about for ourselves as we go out in the world and interact with people in a research context or in others you know how do we want to how do we want to conduct ourselves and um you know Jen's example is really, I don't know, it's very inspiring. She kind of makes it funny and um, very sort of earnest and personal as opposed to, you know, you could imagine telling that story with a lot of curse words, right? Like, oh, then I burned my thumb and then this happened and I was so mad and I had to do the interview and I didn't want to do it because my thumb hurt and I couldn't focus what the person was saying. She turns it all around and kind of, um, it's just very uh, kind of connected and present with what she's trying to do. Um, and so it's a really, you know, her, her story is a, is a really lovely one because, uh, because of that, the, the personal truth, I mean, not to be so hand wavy woo woo, but she does kind of mm-hmm. this personal truth, uh, finds one for herself, um, in this experience, which is, you know, it's an everyday banal thing. I burn my thumb, blah, 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 blah. But she finds her way to talk about it in a way that's, um, I don't know, pretty inspiring. It's funny and inspiring and, you know, just makes you think about, makes me think about myself and how I move through the world and, and so on. Yeah. yeah, I think I think just that, um, one of the things for me when I'm reading it is that um, sometimes what was interesting for me was was not what was said in the story as such, but what wasn't said. Um, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, at times, I was finding myself on that boundary of, of being judgmental. But even that was was the kind of the interesting aspect of of some of the stories was your reaction to it. Like with the um, an example, there would be the story. I think it was Melissa and Mike, who were the who were there was the crazy guy that came into the 
um, interview, um, back, just barged into the into the room, um, unannounced, and you know d- demanded that um, Melissa leave the interview now and goes to this tele telephone conference um, that they'd arranged in the next in the next room, um, and um, and there you know I started reflecting about kind of the 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 culture of that organisation that they were doing the interview at and and how. And how that must be to allow those kind of situations to exist. So you see, your your mind starts tumbling into some, yeah, some judgmental things, but also some some reflective things about how you would be in that situation, as we mentioned earlier. That's the great thing yeah. about stories, isn't it? As sort of a mode yeah. of, of reflection, is you know you're really connected with these other people that are having this experience. But I do that as well. I think about I I project myself into the story. And think about mm. what I would do or how I would feel, and um, I think that's what makes it like it, it's entertaining to read stories because we participate them in a certain way, and as you say, we we yeah. reflect on them in this other way. Um, yeah, I think that's. I know that was one of the things I wanted to try to do here was was convey some of the things we think about in, in talking about research, but in this really different way. I think it's it's a different experience to read this. Now I feel like I'm just like pitching the book to you guys, and you. you <laughs> oh, but it, but well, it, no, <laughs> kind of. I mean, I'm agreeing. We, we would absolutely be agreeing. I think you. I think I've heard you say elsewhere yeah. about the power of. Uh, I mean, there's there's a power in them just being stories, and and you know we've, we're in a world full of um, of clickbait articles with with um, you know the seven the seven things you need to do when you do this, or kind of like you know three mistakes you have to avoid when doing that, and and everything is everything is bullet lists and everything's prescriptions. Um, so it, it's it's nice to it's nice to just share things that have happened. You know, shit happens, and we share it, and we talk about it, and we can like you know learn things from it. But also, I think coming into the industry and coming into becoming a user researcher, reading this book can prepare you in ways uh, that other books cannot prepare you in. Uh, I'm, I'm now thinking of uh, the emotional roller coaster I went through when I just reading the chapter, I don't know what you called it, but uh, where they enter people's homes and there's this pungent smell and everything's dirty and, and you, you sort of want to get out of there. And the reasoning you do with yourself to stay put and actually stay with your intent to learn something from this person and realize that you are learning something from this person and perhaps that was the best person from, from all the interviews and just getting over the, those obstacles of, well, of judging. Um, there was this woman who, who lived with her cats and the dog was vomiting and, and then they realized that she had been a peace negotiator, I think right. it was. And you realize, oh man, this woman has a backstory. And you, as soon as I read that, and I realized, oh my God, I have so much judgment. And, and... All all people have a backstory that you need to learn about to actually build up that empathy, uh, and I there was there was so much in there that I, that made me think about how would I react in that situa- situation. But just reading it, I realized I I probably could handle that situation better now that I have read about it, that I have read about someone else's ex- experience. You know what I'm I'm so proud of all these people that contributed. There's more than sixty contributors here. Um, and you know what I really am proud of is that these are uh, not anecdotes, they're stories. The anecdote yeah. is we went into this woman's house and it just smelled disgusting and the yeah. dog was vomiting and like, oh, she was some kind yeah. of peace negotiator. Like that that yeah. anecdote just <laughs> kind of makes you go, whoa. Uh, but it doesn't really, yeah. it, it doesn't induce the reaction that you had, that kind of reflection. And um, And so all these folks that have contributed have, I think, dug deep personally to 
to bring out the details and and make it come alive and take you on their journey of what happened and how they were feeling and um i think the craft of telling stories as well as they need to be told to to do what these stories are doing is something that people can work on uh and, you know ideally we can move past sort of anecdotes where we go ha huh, that's cool and uh have people do more storytelling beginning middle and uh, mm-hmm. you know, surfacing all that detail. And I think that detail is, it's hard if you're not sort of a, a, a natural storyteller. It's, it takes a little bit of work um, to do, but I think that's what gets it to, gets us to have these kinds of reactions like you're describing where you, you start to reflect as a reader. I think there's, you know, it's like, like it's the, the iceberg model. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the shallow story is that now I'm mixing metaphors. The shallow story has sort of a certain amount of value, but the deeper story does bring us to reflect on these deeper truths. And it, it takes that, mm. it takes more work to produce those stories. But I think that's where we can just get so much more out of them. Uh, yeah, so and the well-written story can actually help you feel those emotions, so it triggers those emotions in your brain, so it's actually like you have experienced it. So I've been in, in, in story-reading mode. This is my fourth book I read this year, and the previous three were nonfiction, and I realized that I'm tr- really triggered by the... <laughs> that's probably why I loved it so much. I'm really triggered by these stories because I realized by reading them, I'm living them, uh, which means that I've already experienced them, which helps me in my job. So it's a better way of learning, uh, as, as I see it right now, <laughs> than, than reading do this and do that in a bullet, bullet point format. I, th- I think as well, when, uh, when you bring together a, a, a body of, of stories uh, across the blog and, and in the book as well, that, that um, are from some, so many different um, parts of the world, cultures, even you know, points in time, um, it, it, it surfaces the, the, the complexity of our cultures and also mm. how our biases play on them and our presumptions that we go in um, to these these situations with um, a lot of these stories highlight that that kind of clashing of worlds, which is which is really good to get across in story format. Totally agree. So I I want to spend some time on my pet subject uh, these days because uh, you have a, a chapter on that is ethics and trust. So uh, it's something that I haven't come across myself in my user research, but these stories were so good then in, in describing this is what could happen. How, what would you do? I would, I would, I would even want to read like a, uh, a book where you actually choose. What would you do to go to page ten if you do this, mm. and page twelve if you do that? Choose, choose your own adventure. That I read a lot when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But mm. so, if a participant that you're interviewing is engaging in unlawful activity, what do you do? Uh, and you, you, you wrote something about ethics being a conversation rather than a set of principles, and I, I like that. How you wrote that? Could could you just describe how you think about how user researchers should approach this idea of ethics? I mean, I I, th- I think what you said, uh, you know, your sort of headline for this this part of the discussion was mm-hmm. if you see somebody engaging, one of your participants engaging in ethical mm-hmm. ethical behavior or unlawful behavior, what do you do? Yeah. And you know, not to be sort of smug, but I feel like the response to that is yes. Right. The, like the question is the thing. Yeah. Yes. What do you do? Um, you know, so that's that's the conversation. Right. What yeah. what do you do? Uh, so you've 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 asked it as a question and the question sort of wants to be answered. But mm. I feel like by asking the question, you then have to go down a path mm. yourself and with somebody else to try to figure that out. Mm. Um, and And because there doesn't seem to be. 
you know there are there are certain there are certain areas I think where you can throw in some ethical rules and uh, uh, I mentioned I think in the footnotes I don't I can't remember where it is but I mentioned uh, uh, IDEO has a uh, like it's the um, I'm going to botch the title my apologies but it's the it's like the tiny book of design research ethics or something it has mm. a sort of an appealing title which uh, is uh, a, a free PDF from IDEO's uh, website somewhere. Uh, and it's the, the little book of design research ethics. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I knew if I whatever I said, I knew it was going to be wrong. Sorry. <laughs> I use um, the inter- I use the internet. I didn't know. I just yeah. press buttons. <laughs> no, I'm not apologizing to you. I'm apologizing <laughs> to the IDEO people who created this little book. And you know they, you know they're an organization. They can create policies, and so they have policies around uh, data retention and so on. Like those are sort of things you can have some governance around that your clients don't get access to the contact info of the participants. Uh, but it's still kind of a baseline, right? I don't think IDEO says, well, like if you see someone stealing a banana while you're doing a shop along, what do you do, right? The and, you know, I think with all these stories and certainly with the ethical ones, for sure, with the chapter around ethics, um, you can't create kind of a set of rules that would be sufficient to, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say you couldn't because some theoretician will tell me I'm wrong. You could. It's not, it's <laughs> not reasonable to create a set of rules that would allow for all these things. Um, you know, and, and, and so the kinds of stories that come up, you know, in, in the history of social science literature, you know, you have people witnessing a murder, uh, you know, sort of more explicit kind of Ten Commandments types of crimes, um, and that still there are sort of struggling the, the social scientists and, and, uh, that, that have a history of dealing with this and writing about it, reflecting about it, face these ethical conflicts, you know, are you... If, you're, if your research brings you into contact with something that could harm the person that you're studying, what is your obligation? If that person commits a crime, what's your obligation to protect that person? I think the, you know, the trend is to lean towards protecting that person, uh, but then that might expose risk to ourselves, to our employers, to our clients. Uh, it's not black and white, uh, and yeah. you can... You can you don't even have to be fantastical to come up with a scenario that, you know, if you say, well, it's always going to be this, uh, we can easily come up with a variation of that scenario mm-hmm. uh, that, that puts it into a different category. And so that's, that's the conversation, I think. Like, you just, you don't know. I don't think you can go out into the world with this sense of, you know, ethical certitude that I always mm-hmm. do this or I always do that. It's, it's really, really messy and I think what you see in some of these stories is people grappling with that set of set of ethics and, and you know, what their values are, who they're trying to protect, who they might expose, what, you know, they're, they're stuck between delivering good research that can help their client take action and protecting the person who gave them the insights that, that, that helped them understand how to help their clients. You see people... Um, you know, struggling to make sense when they're, they have these different forces pulling them in different directions and different obligations and different commitments. And it's, that is the conversation. That is the thing they're trying to navigate. Uh, and, and, you know, there may be no satisfactory answer if you're going to let someone down uh, or not sort of satisfy everybody or not be able to mm-hmm. live up to your principles in every direction. And so I guess that's the conversation. That's, that's the journey.
Yeah, and as you're saying, it's a conversation as well. And you said uh, in the begin beginning, it's something you need to have a conversation about with yourself, but with someone else as well. It's very hard to come up with the answer for yourself, to have people around you that you feel that you can trust and talk to. I was definitely inspired. Mm. I think I, I copied some of this from from the mm. IDO book. They they mm. talk about um, you know who they list out who in their organization you as an IDO staffer can go to, and so that's you know this person in this role. This you know it's your boss. It's the head of this of your team. I think that means it's time for Heptascale questions. Good. Yeah. So Heptascale questions are when we ask you. Uh, one question each, uh, and we ask you to rate something on a scale of one to seven. You answer the question with with one to seven. A number. A number for one to seven. And uh, the scale will become apparent by the way the question is asked. But you are not allowed to expand on your answer at oh. this point in time. Do you want to start, James? How much is user research a continual fight against your biases? Your biases. What's the and how does the scale work? Seven is a lot. Yeah. Six. And my question is, on a scale of one to seven, how important is it for user researchers to regularly practice being non-judgmental? Three. You know, one of the, one of the downsides we have with the Haptic Girls Challenge <laughs> is that the questions, when they well, at times kind of make you want to go, oh my God, that's an entire podcast episode in itself, working out exactly. why you give that number. <laughs> That will be part two. But you can, Steve, we'll let you give one minute. You can choose one of the two questions. Just give one minute explanation of why you chose the number you did. Uh, the first question, and you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've said it a, a, a few times. I think unpacking one's own biases or sort of just disassembling them is its actually my favorite thing about, about doing research. And I have this happen to me all the time where I'm kind of being efficient, you know, I've, I've got somebody figured out pretty quickly based on some cues. And I'm very proud of myself uh, for, you know, the environment, what we learn from recruiting them, you know, how old they are, some demographic things, their race, their gender, whatever. I've got like I've got kind of a story for them and then I'm going to kind of platform my inquiry on top of what I've already learned. So I'm being very efficient and I feel really good about that. And then the more the conversation goes on, the more I realize, oh, their view of the world is not what I thought it was. And I have to, I've, there's so much more to be learned here once I let go of what I've already decided. Mm -hmm. And that's like a joyful discovery. I'm not, I'm not sad that, uh, that I'm wrong. I'm really happy. Like, mm -hmm. oh. And so I, I think it's okay to bring that judgment in as long as you know how to hear the signals that say, oh, you're wrong and there's more here and hooray for us because we get to do this new thing and, and discover and kind of connect in a fresh way. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, the, the, one of the reasons why I, I, I put that question in and I put the emphasis on your biases is that it feels like we're, we get taught or get told a lot about how to, to look after the biases when we're maybe when we're interviewing or the biases of the of the of the subject matter in the in the um, the participant in the interview but whereas to reflect on how how much your own biases really do um drive all this is um i sometimes i think it's underplayed thank you so much for being on the show steve uh, it was great having you again I'm looking forward to hearing James when he's finished your book, and we'll talk about more about it. <laughs> <laughs> I will finish it, I promise. 
It's always great to talk to you guys. I really enjoy it. Thank you for, for including me. One thing I've been realizing when I was reading the the book, as well as what I've said in the interview, about it, sometimes what, what was said in the story itself, but what wasn't said. And that that, that kind of comes into reminiscing as well. That I, you know, I've, read the, I've read half the book, so it's, what, 30 stories or something. And um, I've already probably generated about 12 stories of my own because of the, the reminiscing that that you 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 just naturally do. I mean for me and you we've been we've been around for quite a while. You know we're we're, we're not new to the profession. Um we so we do have our own war stories. So so by reading through it mm. you, you you reminisce. Uh, you know it, it bubbles up another story while yeah. you read someone else's story and and I've 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 enjoyed that so far. I mean I Yeah, you really start thinking about yeah, I've been through something similar. But just just getting lost at a client's office is. I think many of us have have been through that as well. Oh, that was a story when a guy had gone he'd gone to the toilet. Yeah. I think it was, and he'd and not taken his. He was in a he was in a network operations center, and he'd not taken his his temporary pass or his guide exactly or his phone or even his telephone with him, um, mm. and got kind of and, yeah. trapped in a different. He needed part of like the he didn't like key card for three doors that he had passed, but so he was locked in, and there was he didn't remember the name of the person he was going to meet. <laughs> So what? So what's your story? Uh, I've just I've just been lost in corridors uh, in places when when I've been asked to leave or the, yeah, can you find your way out? And I'm like, yeah, sure I can. And then I walk around for like five minutes trying to find the exit. <laughs> <laughs> that has happened to me like ten times. <laughs> Do you know when you said that? Now I remember a time when I've done that too, and you end up meeting the people you've had the meeting with because you've taken so long yeah. to get out. They kind of no, are you still here? <laughs> Oh, but no. But one of the one of the um, uh, there was a story in the in the book about um, um, is one I think when they they brought a product manager called Bob to a, a coffee with customers session, and and this reminded me of a time when I was um, I was sort of observing um, together with um, um, a programmer, you know, following the principle that we 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 preach a lot of the time with yeah. kind of exposure hours that you you know, get as many people as you can to kind of see real people using your your the things you make because it gives them it gives so much empathy and, and so much more understanding so i was doing this with a programmer so it was me and the programmer observing someone do their work and it was a real problem because um every single time this 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 person we were observing um started to struggle mm. um the programmer who'd made the software they were struggling with jumped in and fixed the problem they can say oh no, no you do this you click there you do that Oh, and so in, in actually helping the person do it, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So, mm. so every single time we got to that point, was ah, there's something really interesting coming out. Look, they're gonna they're gonna show us kind of like how that is actually quite difficult to work with, mm. or they're gonna show us what they're. Oh, now's a chance for me to kind of ask them why, mm. ask them kind of like why do you want to do that? Mm. You know, get, get some kind of like background information, <laughs> and they just kept diving in, diving in, and kind of fixing. So, fixing, what did fixing. you do? I, I had to step in. Yeah. I actually had to say, I mean, you know, look, you you, you have to you have to just leave it mm -hmm. be now, you know, and and but you end up in that really awkward situation where you don't want to damn, you don't want to kill the enthusiasm of the programmer who's so enlightened now. They're mm -hmm. suddenly kind of they're they're passionately kind of wanting to fix mm -hmm. things now when they see someone real using the software. You don't want to kill that off, but at the same time, you don't want to destroy the the user research and and the moments of being able to find out what's driving someone. Yeah. So, so that yeah, you know, just one of the examples of of the stories that you know, the reminiscing of the stories that you think of yourself when you're going through the book. It's um, 
Oh yeah, that's a that's great a story. that's yeah. a journey in itself. I just love the human aspect of the whole book. That everybody's just human with their emotions and fallacies, and you can't really predict anything that's going to happen because we don't know what people do because they are unpredictable because they're controlled by emotions, and that's the fun mm -hmm. of it as all as well. So it's. Uh, I think he says in the book as well, we're all just participants. It's not that somebody's controlling it. We're all just participants <laughs> in this game. <laughs> yeah, we are. It's just a big game. <laughs> well, um, you can find um, show notes for um, today's show at uxpodcast.com. You can follow us anywhere as UX Podcast. And I mean, absolutely anywhere. I mean, if you, if you can't find us, then just tell us where we aren't and we'll probably be there in a few days. Um, <laughs> if you aren't already a subscriber, then uh, remember to add our show to your podcast client. Remember to keep moving. Did you almost forget you had to say that at the end? <laughs> no, I was, that was a dramatic pause. That, well, that was a dramatic pause. It was a dramatic that pause. Was, it was, it was, because, well, apparently it worked because even you... Well, no. He wondered. No, but I picked up on it. It wasn't dramatic. It was like it's like in the Big Bang Theory, you know, when they have those pause bits, and and it's, the pause is slightly too long before you get the kind of swirly atom thing, mm. and it's long enough that you think, "Good God, has the, has the streaming crashed?" Mm. Oh, see you on the other side. Is the elevator always sick? I don't know, James. Why is the elevator always sick? It keeps coming down with something. <laughs> uh.